So I grew up barefoot outdoors. I had a creek as a best friend. I had a wholeness experience with being in nature. It was something that we look to replicate here today at Straw Town for children. My name is Louise Newsom, entrepreneur and host of The Makers, where we tell the stories of how everyday creatives turn their passion into a sustainable business. In this episode, I capture a conversation between Laurie Seaman, founder director, and Joanna Dickey, program director of Strawtown Arts in Upper Nyack, New York. Laurie and Joanna, as artists, naturalists, and educators, seek to model and inspire environmental stewardship. So this beautiful spot at the tip of Hook Mountain and overlooking the Hudson River enables Laurie and Joanna to do the passionate work of deepening relationships with the natural world and sharing that knowledge with thousands of children to date. In 2002, Laurie founded Strawtown Studio and through her strong relationships with children and the natural world, influenced Laurie to rise as a leader in regional water advocacy collaborating with leading science centers, environmental organizations, citizens, and governments to build partnerships for change. Joanna joined Strawtown as summer art staff in 2003 and has been co-developing and leading programs ever since. Joanna has a degree in fine arts with concentrations in painting and printmaking. So sit back and listen to these two wonderful women share their story and Strawtown's mission to create and provide learning experiences that connect young people with the natural world through art and science discovery. There was a time when I was living in New York City for 20 years, and I was in the art world. I was an art curator. I was also an art advisor and went very deeply into the art world and must have gone to hundreds of artist studios and my knowledge of art materials and processes, world culture were my daily waters that I swam in. And then came my daughter. My daughter was born and I wanted her to have a nature connection. You know, in New York City, it's culture and playgrounds and sidewalks and I moved to Rockland County, which is close to New York City, so I could maintain my art dealing and you know, office in, on Lafayette Street. And it was close to Harriman State Park. And we moved up here, and my son was with me at that time too. I had two children. They were both born by the time I left. But I was in a community at a little school up here, and I was so surprised to find out that there was no backyard play anymore. It was maybe you know a few decades since I had been a child, but Backyard play was a thing of the past. And I'd been in the city so long and not in the child world, I hadn't thought about that. So I was like, oh no, what are we going to do? I started a hiking club for parents and children, and I called it Little Feet. And we primarily hiked in Harriman State Park. What's important to know is that I wasn't a skilled person in any of this. I just simply was thinking, well, what can we do? What would be a good response to the problem? I started the hiking club and it was really successful. A lot of parents and children would come. We even hiked full moon hikes on a school night with poetry books, made fires. But it was one day, it's a very important formative story for our straw town of today. There was a hike on a 17 degree day in January. And I woke up in the morning and I thought, oh, that's really cold for parents and children. But I dutifully drove up to the parking lot in Harriman because there weren't cell phones at the time. And um, almost everybody showed up. 
That was my first big surprise. Something was so special going on with this group that everybody came. And then what happened next was even more remarkable. I think we left the parking lot at 11 in the morning. We didn't come down till dark, five o'clock. And this is, you know, 20 people. The youngest child was five. And we hiked over mountain and down and up over mountain. And we roasted potatoes because we gourmet, a gourmet hiking club at the time, you know, roughing it easy. Anyways, we roasted potatoes and had a view of the river. Anyways, we came down and my wheels started turning. I said, what just happened? My children never would have done that if it had just been with me. So I said, we need to create this for the children, a place for them to come. And a nature camp director heard of what I was up to and invited me to come and teach an Earth Day workshop at a big community gathering. I taught my very first community program that day and I made mobiles, but I made them special. You had to gather words and impressions, you know, of colors and textures and bring them, work those into your mobile. I found out later when they did their big, you know, end of event feedback survey, that workshop was the favorite of the whole community day long event. And I said, what just happened? I put that together, thinking of the children in the woods, creating their own games, being ritualistic, making earth art events, child events, without any adults, but yet we were there to keep them safe. And I said, this, this is what the world needs more than another able art dealer. I started shifting. So I said, what would happen if we created a place for children to routinely have this opportunity outdoors? So it started with my art knowledge. The sciences and the environmental commitments have grown over time. Most particularly, water. We're taking children to streams and waterways and I needed to know if the water was healthy for them to touch and to experience and play in. Went to the Department of Health and I asked, is this particular creek okay to play in? Got some watershed maps. You know, but that question of is this, is this creek okay for children to play in or the water's safe was the first question. And I like to say sometimes one question will determine your path for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. That's true. And that has led us into water advocacy. After that, I learned everything I could about local waters, who's in charge of our water, who's responsible, who's doing their job, who's not, where are the gaps I wanted to be able to protect the waters for the children's future. And eventually I became a a water leader. I kind of got pushed there. I wasn't looking for it. My passion for the children in the future, I think really came through. Then I learned about citizen science. I learned that the Department of Environmental Conservation does stewardship trainings. I learned about the Hudson River Watershed Alliance and attended everything I could and became my own self-trained expert in the field. And we bring that into education now, the, the greater experience of where we are. Mm-hmm. And what we are doing is called place-based education, place-based. Meaning if I go 20 miles up the river, I need to change my curriculum up and learn more about their rocks, their beaches. Mm-hmm. Their natural history. And their environmental challenges. It's that specific. Mm -hmm. The core is the same for everywhere, but it it requires some consideration in teaching, whether you're teaching little children 
like seven to twelves, little mystics we call our, our group, that's an age perfect for this, or college kids. The children of the seven to twelve-year-old range are really special to spend time with. They're breaking away from home, from mom and dad, and they want to know how does the world work, what's happening, how do I fit into it, what keeps me safe, what doesn't. They're so open that they are the best researchers and observers and discoverers of the natural world. That's who we have been spending time with for many years. We learn many, many, many things with them that we pass on now to real sciences and yeah. college curriculum. And, and what, we've, what we've also discovered is after the exploration time and the discovery, there's this um, natural impulse to want to create, to respond. Um, and so Lori and I are both artists, and that's really at the heart of our programming. We are makers, and we love, love teaching children how to make, how to sew, how to paint, how to draw, how to sculpt traditional art methods, but really with a, a different kind of innovative contemporary edge. So there are traditional hand Inviting skills. Inviting the natural world in as our yes. co-creator. Absolutely, yes. So sometimes the activities involve, you know, just like earth art, making an art installation outdoors, just natural materials, a little bit like Andy Goldsworthy style. Or we might make something that is kind of a mix between form and function. For example, we showed children how to um, wood burn with a magnifying glass, with the sun shining through, and being able to <clears throat> position the glass in a way that it, it creates uh, a heat beam that then you can burn on wood. And one of our students created a little stand for it so she didn't have to hold it. So being able to weave our discoveries and our activities between the art and science and functionality is something we love to do. But, but again, it's not just for the sake of creating something new, like te technology, it's, for, it's, it's to relate to the place. So like in, in that case, the sun is our collaborator and the, knowing the position of the sun because you have to change your magnifying glass because the sun is always moving over the landscape. The Makers is brought to you by Trade and Prosper. Here we share the stories of individuals and businesses that make our communities. We believe in those who are committed to doing well by doing good, using their hands, minds and hearts to create a better place for us all and believe that a little sweat and a lot of sharing turns a community into a populace of prosperity. Trade and Prosper is a forum where those like-minded individuals meet to trade ideas, information, goods and services, as well as build long-lasting relationships that enable them to expand their reach locally and also globally. Follow us on social media and join our Facebook group to connect with our growing community of creative entrepreneurs. We've been around for 20 years-ish. We've been a 501c3 not-for-profit uh, for about six years. And so the business aspect, you know, that has been really challenging as two artists. Lori is the founder. I've apprenticed under her for, you know, about 16, 17 years. And um, when we decided to become a not-for-profit, it was a, it actually, first of all, took us two and a half years to actually gain the status. And it was a very gray area. Like we were actually ready to throw in the towel. I remember Lori asking me, could you see us having shareholders as if this was a for-profit business? Or does it make more sense to have donors, people 
contributing to the work. And that's where it really clicked for us. Like, let's go for it. Let's try, let's try the 501c3. Uh, it is charitable. It is charitable. It's for the poor Absolutely. earth as well. <laughs> Absolutely. Not just the children, not yeah. just the, yeah, the, it's for the education. environment. We are actually a, a 501c3 education nonprofit. And we do need to raise funds. We are, we've been around for a while, but um, we are still not fully uh, sustainable as a 501c3. We're working, we've been growing our team slowly and steadily. We're now four full-time people with a couple of part-timers and awesome volunteers. And thanks to the generosity, particularly of one family foundation that discovered our work and funded us for capacity building. So here we are, we've given it our all and we've built it to this level that we are now endeavoring with educator workshop and trainings. We did our first one in November for 20 educators and um, for other river organizations and educational places. Educators of all ages, for all ages. There Not were... just teachers, but moms and parents and artists. And um... as a parent, you are your child's first educator. Mm -hmm especially in this method of education, where you don't need to know the names of everything. You need to give time and be present and... Um... Ask questions. Mm -hmm. The more you, you learn, the more you know, then that, again, informs the art. And so your, your artistic expression is that much deeper and more alive and more related to um, the natural surroundings. I just want to talk a minute about this place where we are at Marydell. This is... Um, called the Mary Dell Faith and Life Center, where our studio is located. Lori, when she first started Strawtown, it was here, 2002, so 18 years ago. Since then, we've been in a few other different um, studio locations, which is actually another story to how we became so in tune with a lot of the waterways around, around our region. But we, were, we came back here a year and a half ago and are here now full time, and what makes it such an amazing place to run our programs is that we are at this place of mountain. We're at the base of Hook Mountain. We have right next to the river, right on the Hudson River. The nursery. Um, it is the on nursery the of the Hudson River, the estuary. And we have woodlands back towards the west with a beautiful little rivulet, freshwater rivulet. Uh, and we have the meadow and the field. So it is a complete picture in terms of the different habitats that we can explore and take the children to. This area is one of the most uh, significant coastal fish and wildlife habitats as designated by the Department of State for New York State. And it is um, an incredible migration corridor for a lot of the broad-winged birds and raptors that come through. So we see bald eagles, we see lots of hawks. And so that makes it just a phenomenal place to be and to, to explore every day is different. To be in a place, I think it was, did you say Andy Goldsworthy had this quote? You saw him once that he said, um, when you go traveling, you notice differences between places. But when you stay in one place, you watch things change over time in the one place. And so that's, uh, we've done both, I was just say. We've been in a lot of different different places, but also here we're settling in and um... coming to know our place is really at the core of our work, mm -hmm. every, way, every which way you look at it, whether you're having a direct experience with place, you know, crushing the rocks and finding the color pigment palette of a creek or, you know, river stones. We're living in a time where people have a postcard view of the world around them. They have no dimensional experience. Mm -hmm. 
you're driving down the highway and you see the, the wetland habitat marsh grasses, people have never even handled them. We harvest wetland grasses at the appropriate time of the year and we dip them in ink and paint with them. You know, you can never drive by and not know notice what stage of life that, that those wetland habitats are in each year. So when you get to that place, what happens next? You hear your places are being impacted by negative experiences, poor decision-making, storm occurrences, and you think, I have a relationship with these places. I'm going to need to do something. It's like when you have a family member who's ill or has a trouble, right? The impulse to do something. So for half of the years that we've existed, most particularly when I heard that Haverstraw Bay was one of our outdoor classrooms was being slated as an intake place for an unnecessary desalination plant. It would have really greatly impacted the nursery. There would have been tremendous water intake and then brine concentrates with unknown, undisclosed chemicals would have been released. So I found out who's meeting about this. I went to a library meeting. At first I was a helper, you know, to ask questions. And, but because I had such a deep relationship, I was looked to as a leader of the movement for helping to protect the Hudson River. It led to an extraordinary journey of nine years. I became one of the three leaders of the movement. I worked with Riverkeeper, Scenic Hudson, Clearwater, DEC, working with top advisors in you know, aquatic uh, habitats and hydrogeology, and we prevailed. It took nine years of having a, like a nighttime job of doing this, but we did prevail, and in 2015, the New York State Public Service Commission ruled that that desalination plant was not necessary. Everything that I learned from working with all those top flight mentors now informs our curriculum. So we have this journey now. We just taught at a national conference on biodynamic agriculture on water with one of my mentors, Jennifer Green of the Water Research Institute. We just taught a room full of people for three mornings on transitioning from water observation and sciences, turning it into education that informs people, education for our times. How do we live here now? What do we need to know? And how to build community and living together in the difficulty and creative responses. And then moving into, for some people like myself, activism, advocacy, starting a watershed group. And so that is why our education is not just for young children at this point in time. You can take all of our artistic and creative and science and blended lessons, but they inform, you can just turn the dial on it. And our three guiding questions for developing programming are for every age. Where are we? Who are we here with? And how are we all doing? That informs our curriculum development. And you can ask that to a top scientist at Lamont Doherty. Where are we? Who are we here with? And how are we doing for earth science? And you can ask a five-year-old. The answers are where the definitions, higher definition comes. And where the relationships come in. We are all about relationships and being aware of your relationship. We live, we live in such, in this culture, in such isolated ways. And with technology, we are becoming more and more isolated. 
you know, one of our guiding ways, which is sort of just happens naturally when you're outdoors more, is to is to look and ask questions and and relate uh, with everything around you and and relationship is, you know, whether it's a relationship to the season or your relationship to a feeling or your relationship to something somebody said. The questioning is the place, mm -hmm. you know, living into the questions together. Mm -hmm. And through the Strawtown education, you know, a creative approach to place-based, art-based environmental education includes developing greater capacity for asking questions more dimensional questions and and having that bring into new dimensions of life, meet new people even. We can all agree on questions. Mm -hmm. It's the answers where people start parting ways. Mm -hmm. So it's a, it is a big practice here of... Um, Staying in the question without trying to answer them, you know, being as present as possible and, and how when you ask a question, often it leads to more questions and being able to be cognizant of that path that you're taking. And one of my mentors uh, is in the wilderness skill arena, Tom Brown Jr. and John Young. They've helped to create a movement of, of connecting people back to nature through uh, native uh, wilderness skills, like fire making, shelter making, living, living on the landscape uh, without modern technology. And there's something they call coyote mentoring, which is when somebody, when you're mentoring or teaching, you don't just give the answers. The aim is to get the person to find their, the own, their own answer from answering questions with another question. When somebody just hands knowledge over to you, it's external and you have no relationship with that knowledge. Well, that goes you to forget the sense it. of self. Yeah, you forget it right away. So what is our, what is our mantra right now, Joanna? Sense of... Our mantra right now is to uh, help children and communities develop their sense of place, their sense of self, and their sense of purpose. And their sense of self to be included in their community sense of self also, not the yeah. singular yeah. isolated sense of self. And also the sense of place is also a sense of belonging. I think we live in a culture where everybody is moving at such fast paces. They're flying, you know, all over the world. They're moving at, you know, 60 miles an hour in cars that, um, and especially for children, they don't have the awareness of geographic space that, you know, older people do. And so when they're, they just get popped in a car and get moved over, they don't really, they have no idea where they are. That's our logo, mm -hmm. which is a reflection of a compass or a native Indian medicine wheel for becoming oriented in one's life. Mm -hmm. And where we come from is a very big part of who we are, and yet very few people are thinking that way. They don't know basics. For example, where does our water come from? Yeah. Where is it going? What does our water need? This is one of the Beautiful questions I, I may ask when I give talks and people in the, in the rooms want to know. They go, where does my water come from? It is a time for that question. And that is a question that we carry with us and towards inspiring others to want to take care of their places and learn to look around. There is a woman named Janine Benyus. She coined the phrase biomimicry. I heard her speak at a conference once and she talked how she had gone to Rutgers University and was in a nature writing course, their major. But she's created a biomimicry field 
of being consultants in nature to top thinkers who want to learn from nature, a la Leonardo da Vinci, right? She may consult with Boeing and et cetera. And she, you know, I think she's a bit of a talent search provider, matching people up for you know, nature and design. And this quote I heard in a film last year from Janine Banyas, success in the natural world is when life continues for 10,000 generations, which presents a problem for us because we cannot take care of these generations, but we can take care of the place and the place will make sure that life continues. Janine Banyas. Thank you for joining me this week on The Makers, brought to you by Trade and Prosper. If you enjoy our show, please follow us and leave a review on iTunes. To be part of our growing community of creative entrepreneurs, join the Trade and Prosper group on Facebook.